Okay, um, so um, in case you don't know who this person is, he's really important. What he did set in motion an idea that up until his time was not very widespread. Nobody really thought about it. And that was the idea that, okay, that was the idea that everybody should have access to the Christian scriptures. Um, so, and, and there are certainly other people who um, shared similar ideas and did similar types of things as John Wycliffe, but he was one of the first. And he is often called the morning star of the Reformation. Again, about 200 years before, 200 years, give or take, before Martin Luther, um, he was championing ideas that all of us today benefit from. So John Wycliffe is widely considered one of the medieval forerunners of the Protestant Reformation. His criticism of the practices and beliefs of the church foreshadowed those of later reformers. John Wycliffe was a seminary professor at the University of Oxford. He was a theologian and a priest. He was a Bible translator, a church reformer, and of course, a heretic. <laughs> can't, can't leave that out. So John Wycliffe was born in 1330 in the North Riding of Yorkshire, a rural area in the north of England. He was educated at Oxford. And if you are like me and you don't know a whole lot about the geography of the island known as England, um, you may not really know where Oxford is, but Oxford is actually pretty close to London, which of course is the capital of England. So by uh, moving to the, the southeast corner of England and working and teaching at Oxford, he was close to the center of English life. Uh, he taught at Oxford and became a regent master in arts at Balliol College in Oxford in 1380, sorry, 1360. So Wycliffe challenged many of the common ideas of his day in both religion and politics. He challenged the wealth and power of the church and the clergy, and he also challenged the king and the nobility. However, his criticism of the church often centered around the fact that the church had so much power and so many resources at its disposal that was, it was often meddling in the affairs, what, what we would think of perhaps as the secular affairs of English life. And uh, he, was, he was very much opposed to the church doing that. And so the aristocracy began to look somewhat favorably on what Wycliffe was doing. If he's challenging the power of the church and he's upholding the, the power of the king and the nobility, you know, this was going to earn him favor with those groups. And of course, the church is not going to like what he's saying. 
Um, Wycliffe also challenged the doctrine of transubstantiation. And we'll get into that in a minute. Wycliffe challenged the idea that the scriptures should not be translated into common languages. Okay, so accessibility to the scriptures is another area where the church of that day exercised a lot of control. If the average person cannot read the Bible for himself or herself, then they don't know what's in there. They have to rely on the church's teaching. They have to trust that the church will tell them what's right, that they will accurately convey what the Bible has to say. Um, so in that way, he also challenged church authority. And you can see, again, this is an area where the church hierarchy is going to look very unfavorably on Wycliffe's challenge. Um, behind here. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, okay, so Wycliffe challenged two things in particular, and um, Wycliffe challenged a practice known as simony, or simony, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. Simony, thank you, Greg Weiss. <laughs> simony is the act of selling church offices and roles or sacred things. And um, if we look in Acts 8, um, verses 5 through 24, and I'm just going to turn there. You can turn there if you want. In Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5, And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and even after being baptized, he continued on with Philip and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was con constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, 
who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon you. So this is the first instance that we have from church history of someone attempting to buy the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And this idea that you could buy and sell church offices as time went on, and, and by, the, by the time of Wycliffe, this practice was widespread throughout the church um, in Europe. Now, indulgences. And so those of you who have um, watched the movie Martin Luther, many of you have, perhaps some have not, or you may be familiar with the history of Martin Luther, you know that Martin Luther in the 1500s was challenging the practice of selling indulgences. So indulgences are a way for a sinner or a penitent, someone who's trying to repent of their sins, it's a way for them to reduce the amount of punishment that they have to for, undergo for their sins. And these were often sold. So many times, the, and the church taught that you, if you sinned, you, you know, there were certain things you had to do, prayers you had to say, uh, maybe you would have to go on a pilgrimage. Um, but um, obviously you can see this is something that's ripe for abuse. The practice of selling indulgences uh, became widespread and it was a way for the church to earn money. Um, and Wycliffe spoke out against these things um, because he saw, of course, that this was corrupting the church. Okay. So around 1380, Wycliffe wrote a treatise called The 33 Conclusions on the Poverty of Christ. And he focused on the poverty of Christ, showing how the fact that Christ had completely given up everything by becoming a human being, that this should inform and help structure the way the church should be functioning in the world. So um, one of the things he said in this um, particular work, he said priests should not accept secular employment. There were many situations in the medieval church 
where the same individual was holding an office in the secular government along with being a bishop or a cardinal or, or holding some high church office. So Wycliffe was one of the first to challenge this idea that, and of course in those days, unlike our day, church and state were almost in a lot of areas the same thing. So many people from what we would think of as the, the secular civil government were involved in church affairs and the church was very much involved in the affairs of the king and the nobility in, in a particular place. Um, some of the areas uh, do not necessarily correspond to our modern nations today, but this was widespread throughout Europe. And so the Pope um, oftentimes would tell kings and emperors what to do, what not to do. If an emperor or king invaded an area and the Pope didn't like it, the Pope would issue communications to that king, threatening excommunication, you know, back off, don't do this. And Wycliffe was very much in favor of you know, this is just kind of the beginning of the idea that there should be some type of separation between the church and the civil government. And another thing, again, in endearing him to the nobility of England, um, and of course, putting him in uh, a bad place with the church, he put forward the idea that secular rulers can take property from the Pope or the Cardinals when they abuse their privileges. So he was very much for standing up to what he believed was this excessive amount of authority on the part of the church, uh, especially in English life. Okay, so the idea of transubstantiation, how many people have heard this word? quite a few, and, and for those of you who are not, we're gonna explain that. It's a big, long word, and this is, it, it expresses an idea that was part of basic church teaching at this time in history. It's the idea that the change of the substance or the essence by which the bread and wine are offered in the sacrifice of the sacrament of the Eucharist. In other words, Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. The bread and wine actually become, in reality, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And Wycliffe challenged this idea. So Wycliffe was a realist philosopher. He was one of the most... Um, I'd say well-known philosophers of his day. Uh, he was praised um, in his work at Oxford. He was considered one of the top professors of philosophy at that time. And he believed that universal concepts, this idea of bread and wine, the body and blood, all of these things, they have a real existence, but if the bread and the wine are no longer bread and wine, if they have turned into something else, then they just simply don't exist. They were bread and wine, now they're gone, they've been replaced by what? So Wycliffe began to teach that this belief in transubstantiation led to idolatry, that people 
would, you know, if they looked at the bread and the wine on the altar, that they would begin to view it as something to worship. And because if it truly becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ and we worship Jesus, why not worship the bread and wine? Because it's become his body and blood. And he believed also that this idea was not scriptural. So England had been virtually free from heresy until Wycliffe published two different treatises in 1375 and 76. So this predates the, the uh, 33 ideas that he had published in 1380. Um, so he was, even as early as the 1370s, he was beginning to challenge widespread ideas that were accepted. So he argued that the exercise of lordship depends on grace and not on anything else, and so therefore, a sinful man has no right to authority. If you're not in a state of grace, if you're not good with Christ, then you don't really have any right to exercise authority. So because of this, priests and even the Pope himself might not necessarily be in a state of grace at any given time and thus might lack authority. And again, this would put him in uh, a bad place with the church and, you know, certainly the nobility. Um, one, of his, uh, one of his, I guess you could say, patrons was John of Gaunt, who was uh, the younger brother of the King of England. Uh, he was a noble. And he began to look out for Wycliffe. Um, he took Wycliffe's side on a number of occasions, and people became aware that Wycliffe had the favor of John of Gaunt, and so they were less likely to harm him because this powerful, wealthy nobleman was looking out for Wycliffe. So, um, And now I will say John of Gaunt had troubles himself and he was not always in a place where he could protect Wycliffe, but he did protect him wherever he could. Um, certainly there was pushback from the church um, and Wycliffe, you know, he wasn't always uh, able to travel as freely as he might want to. Um, he was sometimes challenged at Oxford uh, his position there at various times was put in jeopardy. But the beginning of the Great Schism in 1378 gave Wycliffe fresh opportunities to attack the papacy. Now, has anybody ever heard of the Great Schism of 1378? Besides Greg Weiss. Okay, we have a few people. That's cool. That's great. So uh, the Great Schism of 1378, you know, there's whole big thick books written about this, um, so I, I'm not going to do a lot of explanation, but basically what happened was there were uh, contentions about who should truly be the pope. And there were French popes, and there were Italian popes, and there were different people trying to become pope. And at one time, the Roman Catholic Church had two popes, 
And then eventually, there were three popes. And there was this big uh, to-do about who was actually the pope. Now, certainly, this you can see how this internal strife and conflict over who is at the head of the church hierarchy in the West would bring about opportunities for many people, not just Wycliffe, but many, to take advantage of the fact that the church was internally split. Um, and certainly, this gave him, this gave Wycliffe uh, a lot of um, ammunition to aim at the church and show how it had been corrupted. So from August of 1380 until the summer of 1381, Wycliffe was in his rooms at Queen's College, Oxford, busy with his plans for a translation of the Bible and an order of poor preachers who would take Bible truth to the people. And this was very revolutionary for this time. So a translation of the Bible into the common language or the vernacular spoken by the people was an essential part of Wycliffe's challenge to the church. Because the church had been corrupted and discredited, he believed the common people needed to know the word of God for themselves. Wycliffe's Bible is the name now given to a group of Bible translations into Middle English that were made under the direction of John Wycliffe. They appeared over a period from approximately 1382 to 1395. Now, for a long time, people thought that these translations were the work of just Wycliffe, um, but now the Wycliffe translations are generally believed to be the work of a group of scholars. Nicholas of Hereford is known to have translated a part of the text. Uh, men named John Purvey and perhaps John Trevisa are names that have been mentioned as possible authors of different portions of the Wycliffe Bible. So the translators did not go back to the original Hebrew and Greek manuscripts to make their translation of the Bible. Instead, they worked from the Latin Vulgate. This was the standard Bible for the Western church. And um, does anybody here, um, have you ever heard of the Vulgate? Heard what that is? So the Vulgate, The Latin Vulgate was the translation from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts into Latin. And these were put together by St. Jerome uh, in the late 300s to early 400s. Now, for centuries, the Latin Vulgate had been the authorized Bible for the church in the West. So Wycliffe took the Latin Vulgate, Wycliffe and his group of scholars, and they decided to go ahead and translate from the Vulgate, from the Latin. And the text that they produced 
does conform fully with Catholic teaching. There was nothing in Wycliffe's Bible that the Catholic Church could point to and say, this is heretical teaching. You've altered the meaning of the text, and what you're doing is heresy. They couldn't do that. However, Wycliffe had no authorization from anyone. He didn't have it from the king, the pope, the church hierarchy, to make a translation of the Bible. But his translation proved to be very popular. I don't know how well you can see the picture up there, but that is actually a page from Wycliffe's Bible. And I sure am glad I don't have to read from it. <laughs> um, that script and the way words were spelled in Middle English is very archaic to our postmodern eyes. Um, and all of the uh, copies available were handwritten manuscripts. Remember, we're about 200 years before the printing press comes along. So every Wycliffe Bible that anyone was able to get their hands on had been patiently, painstakingly written out by hand. <clears throat> and the interesting thing is that of all the manuscripts available that we have today that uh, exist in, in Middle English, the Wycliffe Bible manuscripts are the most prevalent. So today we have about 250 manuscripts of this Bible, and recently one copy sold at auction for over $1.5 million. So um, if you have one of these in your attic, <laughs> you're, you're rich. <laughs> Okay, so surviving copies of the Wycliffe Bible uh, fall into two groups. There was an early version and a later version. And both versions uh, exhibit what scholars say is almost a slavish regard to the word order and the syntax of the Latin originals. Now, the later versions do give some indications of being revised in the direction of idiomatic English. In other words, English as it would have been spoken by the common man. So here's a little example. Here's an example of um, the Latin from the Latin Vulgate. And this is a translation of Genesis 1-3. And I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the Latin. I don't know how that would be pronounced. Um, but the early, one of the early Wycliffe texts reads, And God said, Be made light, and made is light. Now, again, that sounds a little odd to our ears, um, because the syntax, the word order in the sentence, is different than how we would say it. Uh, the later Wycliffe texts say, and God said, light be made, and light was made. Now that sounds a little better. Now the douay Reims Bible, which is an authorized Catholic version, which is available today in modern English, uh, sa says, and God said, be light made, and light was made. So Wycliffe was trying to follow the Latin uh, Vulgate Bible as closely as he could. 
And I think this passage gives you a little bit of an idea, uh, for one thing, how they would have spelled common words in that day, very different than our spelling. And again, the, the syntax, the word order in the sentence is somewhat different. Now, Wycliffe believed, another almost revolutionary belief at his time, that the scriptures are a sufficient rule of life apart from canon or church law. And you can see this, this would be a very dangerous idea because what he's proposing is that people are going to read the Bible for themselves and they may decide to order their life, their Christian life, based on what they believe the biblical text says that they have been able to read in their own language. So every person, whether clergyman or layman, has the right to examine the Bible for himself. And one of the church leaders who protested against this idea said, even women will get a hold of this and they will begin to read the scriptures for themselves. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very revolutionary idea for his day. But Wycliffe believed that the scriptures are rightly the property of the people. Another revolutionary thing, or, or uh, certainly a challenging thing, that Wycliffe did was that he established an order of poor priests or itinerant wandering preachers to go barefoot and poorly clothed with no money and a long staff to carry his message for the people. So um, does this remind you of anything in the Bible, this idea that people should be sent forth to go preach the gospel and they would be poor, just like Christ was poor. And so that reminds me of the uh, account in the Gospels where Jesus instructs the 12 to go forth and do exactly the same thing. Uh, in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. 
Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. <clears throat> now, if you think about it also, this idea of having a group of people not subject to church control to go forth England and maybe other places and start preaching the gospel this was certainly a, a very real challenge to church and secular authority. And um, eventually the poor priests were going to be very much persecuted. Okay. The Peasants' Revolt in 1381. So at the same time that Wycliffe was sending out his poor preachers to preach throughout England, the peasants were rising up in protest of excessive taxation. How were wars fighting? People were always fighting wars in the Middle Ages, right? I mean, that's what we know the Middle Ages <laughs> are all about. They're always fighting wars, but wars take money. Where do you get the money? You get them from the peasants. So to finance yet another series of wars, the King of England had instituted a poll tax or a head tax. So it was a, a per person tax uh, that was to be paid in addition to all the other taxes that were levied on the common people. And this proved to be too much for them and a group of peasants uh, who were also joined by some clergymen uh, rose up in Essex and Kent, and those are counties in England that are in the southeast part, and they're fairly close to London. And so eventually the revolt spread to London and came right to the doorstep of the king's palace. So you have this, all of this is going on with this backdrop of general social political unrest because people are upset about the taxation. So getting back to the poor priests or the lollards, the, loller, the term lollard was a derogatory term that the church and other people gave to the poor priests. Um, but the original group centered on some of Wycliffe's uh, colleagues at Oxford. So this idea of going out to proclaim the gospel uh, without church, the church blessing, and you were not an officially recognized clergy person, um, really got started with the help of Nicholas of Hereford. But then the movement gained followers outside of Oxford. So it began to spread. So Another thing that was going on was just a general feeling that not only is the king taxing us heavily to pay for his wars, but the church also taxes us as well. And so a lot of the feeling of the common people at that time was opposed to the church. After all, the church is rich and powerful, and we have to buy indulgences, and people are paying the church to obtain high church offices. The church has plenty of money, tons of resources. Why should we pay any more? But it was easy for the, the uh, church hierarchy 
and the king and the nobility to ascribe all of this unrest in the, in the society at large to the influence of Wycliffe and the Lollards. And the Lollards were severely persecuted. They, uh, they began to be rounded up and jailed and then executed. And um, a lot of times they were tortured before they were executed. It was, it was really violent. So in 1382, the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, here's one of the church heavies weighing in. William Courtney forced some of the Oxford Lollards to renounce their views and conform to the Roman Catholic doctrine. So as even today, you know, a lot of times we see uh, social unrest, movements that begin... Um, a lot of times they capture the imagination of college students. And they did, even back in that day. A, a lot of the students at Oxford were very much influenced by the ideas of Wycliffe and the Lollards. But even despite the persecution, this sect continued to multiply among basically the common people. Even some of the clergy were converted to the ideas of the Lollards. Several knights of the royal household and a few members of the House of Commons gave support to the Lollards. Well, there's nothing like a new administration coming in to clean house and get rid of all the riffraff. So in 1399, the new English king, Henry IV, began a campaign to stamp out heresy. So the persecution of the Lollards and other heretic, you know, at this time, there were other heretical groups. Um, they pretty much had to go underground. Uh, and for many years, the movement was supported mainly among tradespeople and artisans, supported by a few clerical adherents. And you had to basically do your activities as a Lollard in a very quiet way so as not to draw attention to yourself. Unfortunately, as Wycliffe's life uh, continued, there was increasing persecution that he personally faced. So the Pope issued a papal bull or a proclamation against Wycliffe on May 22nd, 19, or sorry, 1377. Um, and this is before some of the things that, you know, Wycliffe had been uh, speaking out about, even at that time, even before some of his later writings, this bull, papal bull, denounced 18 of Wycliffe's ideas as erroneous and dangerous to the church and the state. But we do know that Wycliffe continued to publish writings that criticized the church up until his death in December of 1384. On November 17, 1382, Wycliffe was summoned before a synod at Oxford. A synod is basically a fancy term for a, a church council or a conference. At that time, he still commanded the favor of the court and of parliament and he addressed a memorial to Parliament. Fortunately, he was not excommunicated at that time, nor was he deprived of his living, because Wycliffe, in addition to being a professor at Oxford, also was a, 
uh, parish priest. Okay, so in his last years, Wycliffe suffered ter terribly from rheumatism, and then he was partially paralyzed due to a stroke. He suffered another stroke on December 29th, 1384, and died two days later. So time goes on, and then the Roman Catholic Church uh, had, they convened the Council of Constance. And at this council, church leaders declared Wycliffe a heretic. Um, and this was done in 1415, and they banned his writings, and they were effectively excommunicating him retroactively and making him an early forerunner of Protestantism. The council decreed that Wycliffe's works should be burned and his bodily remains removed from consecrated ground. This order was confirmed by Pope Martin V and was carried out in 1428. Wycliffe's remains were dug up and burned and the ashes cast into the River Swift. Now, why do you think they would do such a thing? I mean, he's dead. How can any of this really matter now? Well, the fact is, um, you know, a lot of times people worshiped remains of dead Christians that they believed to be saints. So the church wanted to make sure that nobody was going to do anything like that, that they were basically just going to obliterate him, even though he was already dead. But of course, these ideas that Wycliffe put forward and the work that he did and the Bible that he left to the English people could not be destroyed. So what is the legacy of John Wycliffe and the Lollards? Wycliffeites in England were often designated by their opponents as Bible men. That's terrible. <laughs> the idea that Christians should read and know the scriptures for themselves was new and often considered heretical in Wycliffe's day, although we take this for granted now. John Wycliffe and his followers enabled the scriptures to be accessed by anyone who could read in English. This helped fuel the translation of the scriptures into other languages as well. Wycliffe Bible translators, and many of us have probably heard of this organization, founded in 1942, has made translations of either portions of the Bible, the New Testament, or the whole Bible in over 3,350 of the 7,350 languages on earth, including 245 sign languages. And this, these statistics, which I got from the Wycliffe website, are as of October of 2018. Wycliffe's writings in Latin greatly influenced the philosophy and teaching of the Czech reformer Jan Hus, which we'll, uh, we'll talk about him in a later uh, session. And the ideas of the Lollard movement, although heavily persecuted, continued, and nearly 200 laters were instrumental in spreading the Protestant Reformation throughout England. 
So this group, despite being despised and persecuted up to the point of death, this continued. And because of the Lollards, many of the ideas of the Reformation that were springing up on uh, the continent of Europe were spread throughout England by Lollards and their descendants. The translation of the Bible into English formed a very important part of the struggle of representative government against autocracy and liberty against dictatorship. Wycliffe's work helped lay the foundation for some of the basic freedoms that we enjoy today, such as freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And today we have a large number of excellent Bible translations available to us in English. So that concludes uh, my presentation on John Wycliffe. I hope that's been helpful for you. If you had never heard of this man, I'm glad that I was able to share this information with you. I encourage you to do some reading on your own, learn more about him. If you are interested in reading more, I've got some books. Um, Our English Bible in the Making is an excellent book, although it's really about the Bible and the different, and the history basically of how English translations came into existence. It does talk about Wycliffe in this book. Those of you who were in the church history class will remember 131 Christians, everyone should know. That means you get this book and read it. And there's a a short, these are short biographies, just a couple pages at the most for each person. And on page 211 is the biography of John Wycliffe. And um, there's a lot of good stuff on the internet. (laughs) And most of what I obtained is from the internet, encyclopediabritannica.com. Wikipedia actually has a very good article on John Wycliffe. Um, So I encourage you to do some studying on your own. It will be fruitful. Thank you.